Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover, doing my best impression of Barry White. I'm just regular Aaron Street, and this is episode 51 of the Lawyerist podcast. Today, we're talking with Bob Ambrosi about the most significant legal tech trends of 2015. Before we get to the show, we just wanted to take a moment to say thanks to those of you who have already made a contribution to the podcast. It's really awesome to know that you value the time and effort we put into the show. Our sponsors only cover part of the cost, so we have been asking our listeners for help. If you enjoy the show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast. If you want to suggest a topic or give us feedback on the show, you can email us at email at lawyerist.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by SaneBox. SaneBox learns what email is important to you and filters out the rest so you can power through hundreds of emails in just minutes. Enjoy a $25 credit and 14 days of premium features by signing up at sanebox.com slash lawyerist. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. You are more productive when you aren't interrupted by your phone ringing. Ruby answers lawyerist phones, and we love the job they do for us. You can visit Ruby at callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with them. And today we're going to skip our usual banter so that you don't have to suffer through any more of Sam's gross, sick voice. Sounds good to me. Here's my interview with Bob. This is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, I am a lawyer in Massachusetts. I uh, am perhaps better known for the fact that I write about technology. I write a blog called Law Sites. I write a column, Ambrogi on Tech, for the ABA Journal, and uh, also do product reviews for Law Practice Magazine. I've been writing about technology for a long time. Yeah, you have been writing for a long time. You have a journalism background, don't you? Yeah, a lot of my career has actually been in journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I actually went to journalism school, and I actually went to law school as a way of getting ahead in journalism. That was my goal in going to law school. I did end up practicing law, but I ended up moving back into journalism, went to work as an editor of a legal newspaper here in Massachusetts, and hmm. then went to work for uh, American Lawyer Media in New York, uh, was the uh, editor of the National Law Journal, and uh, ran a actually ran a division there that was called the uh, ALM News Service, where uh, we were actually uh, sort of trying to replicate a sort of an AP for for the legal field huh. uh, for a while. And uh, and your what's your your day job is you're a media consultant in your law practice, right? Well, in my law practice, I represent. Uh, I'm actually a lobbyist. Uh, is oh, a big okay. chunk of my law practice. I represent the. Uh, newspaper publishing industry in Massachusetts, uh, in the in the legislature and in the uh, and in the government, oh, and gotcha. uh, do legal work for them as well. Uh, so yeah, I I've uh, had kind of uh, one leg in newspapers and one leg in law practice, one way or the other, for much of my career. Well, and so what you didn't mention, but I'm going to, is that um, sort of the part of your reporting on legal technology is lawsitesblog.com, which is kind of the the central place to find you on the web, I think, if you're a lawyer and you're interested in technology. And your blog really is kind of a lot of, it, it really tracks the developments in legal technology. I, I don't think there's really a better place for that. We don't cover it as well as you do at Lawyerist, I don't, or even close, really. So um, that's where to find blog, uh, Bob online at the <laughs> Law Sites blog. That's Bob's right. law blog. <laughs> <laughs> and so recently, you the, the reason we're talking uh, today is, although I'm sure we'll talk again, is you sort of wrapped up 2015 with what you saw as the 10 most important legal technology developments of 2015. And in talking to you ahead of time, I thought you might want to sort of offer a, a clarification on that, that you see these more as trends maybe than, than like single events that shaped legal technology last year? Well, yeah, I think so. I've actually done this post for the last three years now, uh, kind of do the top legal technology developments at the end of the year. But um, 
the the developments tend to carry forward from year to year and continue to be significant from year to year and they do they really are trends although there were a couple in, in of, of actual events that I did kind of pick up on this year um, as as pretty significant um, one of them that I talked about was the acquisition acquisition of Lex Machina by LexisNexis. Uh, you know, Lex Machina is this legal analytics company that goes in and pulls out court data related to intellectual property cases and then slices and dices it in ways that you can get uh, a lot of intelligence out of it that you can't get just by going into the PACER system and looking at the raw court files, you know, information on how long it takes judges to decide certain cases or which law firms are getting the most business for certain kinds of patents or, you know, different things like that. It's kind of like Google Analytics for case law. It's it's like, well, yeah. Although that may not yeah. be clarifying. I'm not sure how many of our listeners use Google Analytics regularly. But. Right. It is like that. And it, and, but it's interesting because it's not just the case law because they're pulling out the actual docket information. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you're seeing information about the law firms that are handling these cases. You're seeing information about the judges and how they decide certain kinds of cases. Uh, and that, you know, what's significant about that to me, I mean, it was significant as a deal in and of itself for a number of reasons. One is, you know, Lex Machina was a sort of Silicon Valley startup that came out of Stanford Law School. Uh, and and LexisNexis, of course, is uh, about as, uh, you know, a old hat, I guess, as you can get in, in the legal industry. So it, it's in some ways, it seemed like a, a marriage of perhaps two companies that you know, you wouldn't necessarily think would be courting each other, but I have to say, I'm not entirely convinced that LexisNexis knows what to do with Lex Machina, but I guess we'll see. <laughs> we will see. Well, I think Lex LexisNexis recognizes that analytics is increasingly important, and I, and so I I think that's what drove the acquisition, and I think uh, LexisNexis will make some good use of that. I, I, it's going to take a while. I hope for so. Them you know, to one, leave of, it in. one of the sort of the, the back pieces that I think is interesting to companies like Lex Machina, Pacer Pro, and even, um, even companies like uh, Fastcase and, and Westlaw is how difficult it is to get legal information out of courts and statutes and things, right? Because there's no right. publishing standard for what a legal opinion ought to look like electronically. And so all of these companies are devoting what really is a shameful, not not shame to the companies, but shame to the legal system, a shameful amount of resources to what really amounts to looking through filing cabinets and trying to get that data into a usable form. Like what Lex Machina is doing wouldn't be all that significant uh, in any other area of business or data. It's significant in law mostly because it is so hard to access the raw the raw data. What they really have is they have a lock on the raw data that nobody else has. And I, I think that's really too bad because if legal information were more open, it would be so much easier to build companies doing amazing things and even more amazing things like Lex Machina. Yeah, it could be argued that that you know that this should be done. That in in a sense, the government government itself should be doing this, but that. That actually kind of leads into one of the other, uh, what I saw is, what I listed as my first choice. I, I also gave myself a disclaimer that I wasn't necessarily listing these in order of importance. But We can bounce around. <laughs> <laughs> but there was the announcement this year that that uh, of this joint announcement by Harvard Law School and Ravel Law uh, that they were going to digitize, jointly work together to digitize uh, and put online totally for free Harvard's uh, entire collection of U.S. case law, and and by all accounts, Harvard has the most uh, comprehensive database of American law and cases. Well, I shouldn't say database; the most comprehensive collection of American law. It will be a database. It will be a database. (laughs) Yeah, in cases anywhere outside the Library of Congress. So, you know. This is huge in and of itself. I, I've been playing around with the internet long enough that I, I remember, you know, when there were only a couple of cases that you could get online, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the promise always was that someday all this stuff would be available for free online. It's taken us an awful long time to get to this point, um, so it's huge that all this is going to be out there. But what's what's even 
perhaps more significant going down the pike is that once this stuff is out there and open sourced out there, that then companies like Lex Machina or like Pacer Pro or like some mm-hmm. of the other companies that are doing innovative uh, stuff in terms of uh, how they analyze and apply analytics to this data can can use that data to really provide some meaningful insights into the law uh, in ways that just haven't been available before. So, or, ca- you know, the- or case text, which you mentioned, and which is probably one of my favorite um, uh, startups that are trying to work sort of in traditional legal channels. I, I love case text. I think it's amazing, and I I, I want it to succeed. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Case Text as well, and I, they're they're real innovators. The guys who run Case Text uh, are, are brilliant and, and have great ideas, and uh, you know something that they've kind of successfully started to do uh, is is try and weave crowdsourcing into legal research. Uh, I don't know whether they even like to call it crowdsourcing anymore. They were calling it that when they first got started, but they're really trying to. Uh, bring the user into the process of helping to kind of annotate and elaborate on raw legal data. So they get the cases and uh, they get their users to um, provide uh, amplification and insight and discussion around those cases. Yeah, it's it's sort of a, uh, it started out anyway as sort of a rap genius for law, which isn't going to mean anything to a certain category of our listeners. Um, but yeah, the idea is that you can highlight a passage in a case and uh, and talk about what that means. Uh, what it's morphed into is they're doing that more as the idea that you're going to elaborate in a blog post, whether that's short or long. Um, and they're bringing in law students to um, do sort of the key site system, but uh, so crowdsourcing it uh, with some gamification and some rewards and things. And it's so cool. Whenever I link to uh, a case. I try to link to it on case text because I actually think first it's a really beautiful interface. It's probably the best place to read case law on the internet. But also because of all that extra information that you get, it really is probably the most comprehensive sort you know place to see that case and what it means uh, on the internet. And I think that that's publicly accessible. I mean, obviously you can go to Westlaw or Fastcase or something and get a different view, but but right now I think case text is the best place to link to cases. And so when I am, that's what I try to link to. I agree with you. And, th- and their publishing platform is pretty cool that they've created. Uh, it's sort of, sort of like medium uh, for law. Uh, and uh, it, it, you know, it, it, the nice thing about it is it makes it really easy to incorporate citations and uh, mm-hmm. references immediately directly into a blog post and then have those references link back to the actual cases. It's, it's a great interface to work with. Yeah, where else are you going to be able to read a case and see right there what lawyers are writing about what that case means? There's, I think Fastcase is trying to incorporate something like that, or maybe they already have, um, but there's really nowhere else that you can get that. It's kind of cool. Yeah, and Fastcase is another company that's that's really been innovative, and I and I know you you've interviewed Ed on your podcast. Uh, Ed Walters, the CEO of Fastcase. Speaking of Fast brilliant Case. people doing amazing things with technology, <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, so uh, you know, they're they're another company that I love to I to follow and 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 uh, just talk to the people who work mm-hmm. here because they're doing some really interesting stuff. So number three, you've mentioned my personal soapbox, which is the duty of technology competence and that it may be finally catching on. Yeah, it's it's spreading. We're up to, by my count, 20 states now that have adopted this. This is what we're talking about here is that uh, for, for those lawyers who still have their heads in the sand, that uh, in 2012, the ABA amended the model rules to adapt, adopt a comment to Rule 1.1, which is the rule on lawyer competence, basically to clarify that lawyers have a duty to be competent not only in law and law practice, but also in the technology uh, that they work with and that their clients work with. And uh, I, to me, that was huge when it was announced. Uh, the... And, and and it's becoming huger because uh, more mm-hmm. and more states are adopting it. Twenty have adopted it. Other states are considering it. Uh, even other states have addressed it, uh, talked about it in ethics opinions. Well, and I, I always feel like I need to clarify, um, or or at least add, when this is mentioned that what the ABA did was it clarified 
that you have always had a duty of technological competence. This isn't a new thing. If you're using a computer to deliver legal services, you have to do it competently. Um, the comment that they added and the promulgating document, uh, the promulgating memo that they released that comment with both read kind of like a smack on the forehead. What are you thinking? Of course you have a duty of technological competence, right? Which yeah, makes me feel happy. And that that's fine. That idea is finally catching on. So uh, the, the thing, the reason I bring that up is I don't want anybody to get the idea that just because their state hasn't adopted the amended comment that they don't have a duty of technological competence. That's preposterous. Of course you do. Right. And the, and the 2020 commission said that even in recommending this to the, Mm -hmm. to the ABA house of delegates, that the the duty already existed. We just want to make crystal clear that it already existed, but you know, it wasn't clear before that. And, and it was maybe even debatable before that. I I hear what you're saying, but this did make it crystal clear. And, you know, as, as you say, a number of ethics opinions have spelled out the idea that even without this comment, uh, the duty is there, that you have a duty. And, and and it's also worth pointing out that it's not just about, this doesn't just mean you need to, you know, be able to pass Casey Flaherty's uh, tech exam right. uh, and, and know how to work a spreadsheet in Microsoft Office. Uh, but you also need to understand the technology that your clients are involved in and how it affects your clients. Not, not just the technology you're using in your office, but how technology affects business, how it affects uh, any number of matters that, that come up these days or has a role in that. So it's pretty broad and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because as you and I well know, there are still, there are still lots of lawyers out there who are having their secretaries read their email for them. Well, I mean, and this is what frustrates me is so many lawyers treat technology like it's an aspirational ethical goal, as if it's, you know, like professional courtesy or something like that. Like, yes, we you should do uh, 50 pro bono hours a year or something like that. That's competence is not aspirational. Competence is the the door that you have to walk through to serve a client. And so if you are not competent, you have a duty to become competent. So if you're handing your emails to your secretary to read them, that makes you an incompetent lawyer. You're not yeah. allowed to represent clients while you are doing that. Yeah. And that's I, what I'm trying to hammer through lawyers' heads. Yeah. Because I think the area where this is becoming uh, – we're seeing some of the most dramatic uh, applications of this are in e-discovery right now. Oh, yeah. Because uh, you know, there has been this, this California ethics opinion that's come down which says – Basically, that every lawyer who goes into a courtroom has a duty to either be competent in e-discovery or basically farm out that competence to somebody, bring somebody onto the case who is competent in it if you're not. And to me, that's striking because a lot of lawyers still think of e-discovery as something that doesn't involve them. In something they're never going to do. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, and this ethics, ethics opinion says, Pretty much any case these days uh, is going to involve electronic evidence of some kind. It's 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 virtually impossible that a case isn't. I loved that case because it was like the lawyer walked into the courtroom being all like, native format judge. I mean, who knows what native format is? And in, in, in that same yeah. tone that uh, that lawyers always joke about how they can't get their laptop to work with the projector before a CLE. <laughs> <laughs> and and in and instead of instead of sympathetic chuckling, and by the way, I don't hear sympathetic chuckling much anymore when a lawyer makes that crack about the you know, oh the <laughs> no. projector. Um, but the judge was not sympathetic. The judge just simply looked down and said, "Well, you need to learn." There was there was no like ah uh, technology. You know, I loved that. So yeah. Yeah, and that's come up in some other cases, even without citing the the ethics rules. Just that the judges are holding lawyers to a standard of understanding the technology that's at issue in their cases, and it just goes with the terrain. So, it's it's really going to be fascinating. I, I don't think there have been any, you know, disciplinary cases so far under this, but th- that day is not far away. Speaking of uh, days that might not be that far away, how long do you think it will be before? You can no longer justify paying a human being to do any significant volume of document review. (laughs) Because that was your number four, is technology-assisted document review is starting to become mainstream. And it's also becoming more effective than humans, right? Yes, except that I think that that what you're saying uh, suggests um, sort of a fallacy about technology-assisted review, because it's 
the key word there is assisted. Yeah. It, this, it doesn't replace humans. Uh, it does reduce the work required by humans. Uh, and some lawyers may not like that because if you reduce the work that's required, you're also reducing the billable hours that are required. Yep. But, but technology-assisted review, at this point at least, still requires humans to be involved in some way. There still has to be human decision-making about what's relevant and what's not relevant. Yeah, I think the companies that the companies I've talked to that are doing it um, suggest that you need about a quarter to a third uh, as much billable time in if you're using technology-assisted review as if you were doing it all with humans. So just put a put a twenty-five to thirty percent uh, on that bill, and that's that's what you can still expect to get out of it, which is huge. I mean, that's an enormous cost savings to clients. It is an enormous cost saving, and it it. It's that's the driver here. The clients are driving the use of this more than the lawyers themselves, and you know, smart lawyers who uh, want to get the business from, especially mm-hmm. larger corporate clients who have the big cases that run into more money are going to be pushing for this more than anybody. I mean, litigation is by far the biz- biggest expense for any corporate legal department, and uh, e-discovery is the biggest chunk uh, of the litigation expense these days. So the more that uh, you can cut costs on e-discovery, on e-discovery uh, the more you know general counsel are going to like you uh, mm-hmm. and come back to you for more business. So speaking of computers uh, taking our jobs, um, <laughs> you you listed artificial intelligence coming to legal research, and so um, this makes me think. You know how how soon before I can start asking Siri legal questions? Really, <laughs> that I don't know. I, I you know I. I don't know what to make of this. I, but that, I that is kind of the premise of Ross, which is the the Watson-based legal research platform, right? I mean, the, it's kind of billed as it might soon be Siri for legal research. That's the bill. Uh, yeah. That's the idea. Uh, there was a, a an article, I think it was in the New York Times this week, uh, kind of saying, you know, don't throw out your law books just yet, uh, that you're still going to have to, it's going to be a long ways before artificial intelligence gets to the point of really being able to make sophisticated analysis of legal issues. Uh, I, Ross, I don't know about you. Maybe you've tried Ross. I have not tried Ross. It's still only in a kind of a closed beta operation, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's built on the IBM Watson c- computer, you know, that we all know for having one Jeopardy. Uh, and it will be fascinating to see how it develops. But I, I, I'm skeptical that we're, you know, we we have any <laughs> that we're that that uh, robots are going to be displacing lawyers for legal research anytime in the next in, in the immediate future. I think one of the hard things about legal questions is legal questions. The whole, in order to solve a problem, a computer needs data, and you have to give it all of the relevant variables in order for it to produce any sort of a useful response. And, and I th- one of the things that I think I have learned about legal problems um, after solving them for a while is that it's never clear what all the relevant variables are. And sometimes they will just come and, you know, sideswipe you and you'll, something that, that, that you didn't even know to ask about winds up completely changing the answer that you need to give or the strategy that you have to adopt. And so... I think it might be more difficult to come up with the list of relevant variables in law than it is in other areas. Although maybe the computers can say, well, here's the answer unless this thing is true. And that will maybe is a flag for you to go and see if that thing is true or not. I don't know. But I think that's one of the challenges is that legal problems in many ways are more complicated than other problems or a lot of legal problems are. Well, and the variables are so variable that right. you, know, you, can't, you can't predict... Uh, you can't predict what a judge is going to do. And the common law doesn't evolve along any kind of a, a, a predictable uh, trend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and litigants, uh, in fact, patterns are not predictable. Or even the types of variables, right? Like in, in programming, um, you can define strings, which are, you know, I'm going to put anything in here. It may be a letter. It may be a picture. It may be a word. Or you can define um, integers, which are numbers or whatever. And so like... But the problem is in law, you may ask a question that seems to call for a variable that would be a number, but the answer that you get may be something completely off the radar like um, a baby. 
right. <laughs> you know, like, exactly. and so uh, you may not even be asking, you may not even be able to categorize the variables. I, that I'm, I'm not a naysayer on this. I think these are all solvable problems, but um, it may turn out that they are impractical to solve. I don't, I don't know, or that we can't get good quality. I, I'm, I'm dubious uh, on Ross. I kind of smirk about Ross because I just, I'm not sure that it's going to work out, but, I, but we'll see. I don't know. I'm totally yeah. interested in it too. So I, I'm not dubious. Well, I'm, I, I'm sure I'll take that back. Maybe I'm dubious about Ross. I'm not dubious about the fact that artificial intelligence, this is why I put it on my list. I, I mm-hmm. think that artificial intelligence is going to play an increasingly important role in law going forward. Um, and part of that, is maybe not on the level uh, of of sophisticated legal research, but we're already seeing what you might call artificial intelligence systems being used to help enhance the delivery of legal services to low-income people, for example. These Mm -hmm. sort of smart systems where uh, somebody who has a legal problem can get onto a website and answer a series of questions and get rooted through to the particular to the appropriate source of, of legal assistance or to the appropriate set of documents that will address that legal issue. Um, it's a very limited form of artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. um, but that's already becoming significant in helping to bridge the the justice gap in this country. And I I do think that artificial intelligence will continue to evolve and will continue to. Um, play a more significant role in in at least bridging doing some of what <laughs> of what lawyers have to do these days. I'm going to stop our conversation about AI there before I go off on a 3-hour <laughs> tangent on one of my favorite subjects. And we're going to take just 2 minutes here for messages from our sponsors. If you're like most lawyers, you probably have way too many emails in your inbox. There's a good chance you have hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands of emails still sitting in your inbox. Keeping them in front of you like that, unorganized, is a huge distraction and productivity killer. For years, Sam and I have been pretty devoted to keeping our email inboxes at zero. If you'd like to achieve inbox zero like we do, but you're overwhelmed with how to do it, there's a great software tool called SaneBox that will quickly get you out of your inbox overload. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Because we could all use a little more organization in our email life, we work out a great deal for our listeners. Visit SaneBox.com lawyerist today and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter your credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Check it out today and let us know if you love reaching Inbox Zero as much as we do. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash lawyerist. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already, but when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers. And I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try. And to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. But since there's no risk, you might as well try. Before the break, we were talking about artificial intelligence, and I skillfully steered us away from uh, the diversion that I would willfully talk about for hours. Um and so your next thing here, we're a little bit biased on, let's be honest. You talked about podcasts uh, enjoying a resurgence in 2015, which is indisputable. They totally did. Yeah. 
And, and yes, I am. I am biased. I've I've had my own podcast for a long time now, and uh, uh, actually, I I can even break it here that I'm actually about to start getting involved in another podcast. Uh, oh my starting, goodness! Starting starting soon. So what is that? Uh, well, can you tell uh, us about it? On the Legal Talk Network, it's going to be about legal technology of nice. all things. Uh, I'm going Shocking. to be doing it with Monica Bay, uh, who used to do a podcast about legal technology herself. Monica Bay, formerly the editor of Law Technology News, is now affiliated with the uh, Codex Project at Stanford. We're going to uh, do a, a monthly podcast about legal technology and flip back and forth with hosting duties. So just an every other month stint for me. So how will that be different from, say, the Kennedy Mile Report? Um, or some of the other legal tech podcasts and things out there? What sorts of things are you going to cover, and, and what's the what's the angle? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't but thought I, of that, I have until a, Monday wait, to figure that surprised. out. But they, I have a few days to figure that out. No, I, I mean, you know, it's it. I think one of the things we're going to try and do, I mean, we, we unlike the Kennedy Mile Report, they talk to each other. I'm going to have mm-hmm. guests on the show. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more like what you're doing right here, I think. I What I would really like to do is to have conversations with interesting people who are doing interesting things in legal technology and make it not so much about the technology but about the people who are driving uh, innovation in the legal field and uh, get their insights and ideas. Cool. So, um you know, obviously serial is what happened. That's what happened with podcasts. Yeah. I, I've been thinking, you know, we do ours and, and, and I like doing it. It's a lot of fun. I, our listeners seem to enjoy it. Um, and, and I've been trying to think though, if I, I'm not sure that podcasting can ever rise above being a niche thing. It's, I don't think it's going to replace radio. Um, I don't think it's going to replace, you know, what I guess I feel comfortable now calling traditional web publishing. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Do you think it has a chance to break out to being a mainstream thing as opposed to a niche thing that can occasionally touch the mainstream or become a mainstream part of the conversation like Serial did? Well, are you asking about podcasting within law or podcasting more more broadly? Uh, you know, uh, I, let's, I think, let's confine it to law. Yeah, because I mean, I think Serial did demonstrate the, that, that podcasting can really break out uh, beyond uh, and become even more popular than radio or something like that. And, you know, I think fewer and fewer people are listening to radio these days and more mm-hmm. more of them are just listening to whatever on their, they're not listening through their car stereos, they're listening on their devices uh, and whatever those devices are. But in law, no, I, I do kind of tend to agree with you. I, I haven't, I just haven't seen the numbers of people listening to podcasts and I, and I don't see, I, it's going up. I think there's more interest in it. Uh, we've seen more interest in our show. There are a lot more really good shows out there uh, for the, for lawyers. You know, when, when it when first started, uh, I started my own podcast 10 years ago or so and uh there really were only a couple of podcasts out there and they tended to be some lawyer who would just turn on a mic and start recording, uh, you know, himself talking or herself talking. So here's so, a, here's a question for you then, because this is podcasts remain an Apple thing, right? I mean, you don't have to have an Apple device to listen. There are other ways to listen, but they are primarily, I mean, the name comes from iPod. So one of the things that I think I don't think could that's be, true because the the name was around before there were iPods. I think really the the Wikipedia entry is that what it says? Yeah, it does say iPods. I that's okay. Wikipedia. I was right. I was looking it up the other day because one of my writers who is not particularly tech savvy um, thought that it meant uh, recording from a pod chair, like if you remember that chair that Will Smith sits in in Men in Black. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he thought that's what it meant, and so I looked it up to find out. Um, uh, so maybe I'm wrong about that, but in any case, it, they've it's been built into iPods and iPhones and things for a while, yep. um, but it's actually been pretty clunky to listen on Android for a long time. But Google has said that they are going to be adding a podcast podcast to the Google Play Store and right. adding a native podcast app to Android. And I, I wonder if that might be enough to change that if you don't have to go out of your way to listen to podcasts, if they are presented as a default thing that you do on this phone in the way that they are on iPhones, I, I wonder if that might make them more popular and more common, even among lawyers. Well, I think it certainly would. I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, I hope so. You know, anyway. it's, they, they, start, <laughs> they started, 
I mean, when they when podcasts started, they, the, the the preferred way to, to listen to them was just through through RSS apps uh, of some kind on your mm-hmm. computer. Um, even before, maybe, maybe I can't remember when the iPod originally came along, um, but then RSS kind of began to die out and and as a delivery mechanism. Um, so certainly the devices are going to drive it, and I think that's really what's going to continue to drive it in the legal field. Is as I said earlier, more and more people are just listening, getting their news, uh, they're reading, they're they're listening. Everything is happening through their mobile devices, whatever they might be, whether it's a tablet or or a phone. And uh, so the more there's apps that make that easy, the more people are going to be listening to this stuff. I think the next thing you raised is probably more exciting than people maybe give credit for, but um, Microsoft finally has a sexy piece of hardware. <laughs> it really does. I, yeah, my I, what I focused on uh, in as the key development was the kind of popularity of the Microsoft Surface line of tablets and PCs over this past year, which really kind of surprised me because uh, it seemed that everybody was using an iPad and that more and more lawyers were suddenly, you know, for years there has been a very small little, small but vocal group of lawyers saying the rest of the legal community should come over to the Mac side. Uh, And that finally had started happening within the last Mm -hmm. couple of years. You were seeing a lot more lawyers carrying around Macs. Uh, everybody was carrying around an iPad. So the popularity of the Surface just just really surprised me. As a matter of fact, my wife just bought a Surface book and, and just loves hmm. the darn thing. Uh, and I, I mean, there you know the thing it's is, like a two thousand like dollar computer. Well, <laughs> it is, but I mean, the thing is, we all we all love our iPads, right? Like, I love my iPad. Um, I can't do anything useful on it. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. the problem. And so, like, yeah. the Surface is the promise of here's a form factor that you know you love. But you can actually do things with, and and I I mean I haven't actually I, I haven't played with one since I think the Surface Two, but um, but man it's a it's a really just a beautiful machine that can actually replace your desktop computer because it's a full computer. It seems like a no brainer for lawyers that are on Windows and want some yeah. a portable way to get work done. Yeah, that and that the handwriting uh, is great on it. You can actually mm-hmm. take notes with its pen, and it feels like writing on a pad. Uh, and then you know, and then on top of all that. Has it's just been you know Windows 10 came out this year and after a disastrous uh, rollout of of uh, Windows 8 or whatever was the last thing, yeah. Uh, Windows 10 has been great uh, and it's a it's truly a, an improvement uh, and it's the best of what what Microsoft can offer. Um, they've been kind of putting up making a push into the legal space this year. They've they've sort of rolled out this law practice management uh, application for... That's a little confusing. For, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a little confusing <laughs> what they're doing with it. Um, but, uh, and uh, there's, you know, an increasing number of integrations of legal tools with Office 365. So all in all, in terms of uh, Microsoft's position within the legal field, it was a good year for Microsoft and it seemed to sort of buck the trend of, of what, what might have been happening otherwise. Well, and Microsoft is a very different company than it used to be. I mean, I, I've never been a Microsoft hater. I I'm, I recently became a Mac person. I love my Apple stuff. It's fine. Um, but I used Windows for years and never understood why all the Mac people thought anything was bad about it. And and I used Linux for a couple of years. And, but one of the things that's happening behind the scenes with Microsoft is... I mean, they're building apps. I, I just downloaded the new Microsoft Selfie app, right? They're, they're using all of this really creative talent and stuff that they have to build neat things. And and they have kind of gotten away from the idea that they're only going to do it for Windows. Right. Microsoft actually has a number of Linux software products out there right now. Um, right. They have open sourced a number of their tools that the I think that I saw that the software behind their Microsoft Selfie um, thing, which automatically makes you look beautiful, um, is based on some open source tools or they developed open source tools for it. This is if you've been following Microsoft for years, like this is not Microsoft. It's a it's a really different feeling company that has a little bit of scrappiness and attitude back in them, which is good to see because it was a scrappy company in the beginning. So yeah, well, even the the apps for uh, iPhone and iPad, the Office apps are, are beautiful. Great. Uh, yeah, really nice. So they and, are no longer it, the presumptive um, big bad company. They they may be a little bit of an underdog now. Yeah, 
And, and if there's an app out there that can make me look beautiful, I'm going to go out and get it right away. <laughs> there you go. Um, I don't. Uh, you said the the your next one is that the legal industry gets an IPO. Yeah, um, this was the what I was talking about here was the fact that uh, Appfolio, which is uh, the company that owns my case, a cloud-based practice management system, uh, did an IPO this year and did a pretty successful one. I mean, you could yeah. kind of argue that uh, this is a little bit of a stretch because Appfolio uh, is is not entire, not solely in the legal space. In fact, until it acquired my case, it wasn't in the legal space at all. But it did uh, it did do this IPO. It raised seventy four million dollars, uh, and it's hard to think of an IPO in the legal industry uh, in in some time. Um, you you kind of wonder why that is, uh, and mm-hmm. I guess I guess to me the significance of this is that maybe uh, this is a foretelling of more of what we might see over the next couple of years. You know, there've been a couple of legal startups that have been growing uh, very successfully uh, and at a rapid rate in recent years. And um, some of them are in the practice management area. Some of them are in the e-discovery area. Uh, are two areas in particular, there's been a lot of growth and development in recent years. And, I suspect uh, that part of the reason we don't see more is that lots of the companies providing technology to lawyers are not that huge, right? There's there's not, you, you don't have massive client bases necessarily. And so um, maybe a lot of these companies are able to grow while still being closely held. Yeah. And so I think maybe that's one thing. Or the products have been owned by, you know, Thompson and Westlaw, um, or Westlaw and LexisNexis. Um, right. yep. Maybe that's part of why we haven't seen a lot of IPOs. But yeah. it, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see who's next. Yeah. You got to put your money on Clio, I think think for being next but i'm not sure yep uh legal blogging hit hit a plateau in 2015 tell me more about that yeah so my my ninth uh, kind of wrap up of 2015 was was to say that legal blogging hit a plateau this year um there have been a lot of there's been a lot of talk about whether blogging is dead uh and uh, it both in the in the mainstream and and in the legal area i don't think it's dead uh, and I think, in fact, blogging is alive and well. And of course, yeah, I'm biased about that. I, <laughs> I do a blog, you do a blog. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like interest in blogging, uh, interest in at least a, a number of blogs out there is surpasses anything that's ever been the case. Um, but it does seem that the growth in the number of blogs has leveled off. All surveys seem to indicate there has just not been a lot of change in the numbers of blogs being launched over the last couple of years. I, again, I don't I don't read that necessarily to say that blogs are less important. I, I keep saying over and over again the same thing. There are some blogs you can look at that are are more important than most print publications in the legal space right now. I mean, yeah, SCOTUS blog, obviously. Yeah. I talk about SCOTUS blog and, and, you know, above the law, it is the, I, I have no idea for sure, but I, I would venture a guess that uh, the readership of above the law uh, is, uh, is quite significant as compared against some sort of more established print and old fashioned, whatever legal publications. Uh, and it's become uh, a, a critical source for uh, following what's going on in the legal industry. Just a SCOTUS blog has become the go-to source for following what's going on in the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, your blog, Lawyerist, is uh, a significant uh, source of uh, discussion and and, and uh, uh, insight into trends in, in law practice and in the legal industry. Um, and, uh, you know, we, even, even when we talk about legal technology – Increasingly, the the mainstream legal press has kind of given up on reporting about legal technology. There's just not as much coverage of this issue in the mainstream legal press as there once was, and blogs have been picking up the slack. And you know, I think part of the change of, uh, I don't think legal blogs are dying so much as they are morphing, um, as the publishers have become in some cases, more sophisticated. But I, I think of blogging as sort of a first person, here is what I think about a thing. 
Um, and like we we still do some of that on Lawyerist, but we've kind of gotten away from even calling Lawyerist a blog because we don't most of our most of our articles are more like something you'd find in a bar journal than uh, a snarky bar journal, maybe, but in a bar journal than on on what I think of as a law blog where I'm giving my thoughts, my analysis, my argument for things about law and the legal industry. And, um, and I think that's true across the board is that blogs are either growing up into something that uh, resembles something that's different from st- a strict blog or, um, or, or that's what people are aspiring to. And so I think maybe we're starting to see, to see bigger influence from other voices that don't look as bloggy, maybe. Yeah, they're becoming more like publishing platforms, more like journalism platforms, and less like that yeah, the, first-person the, idea of a blog like you referred to. Yeah, that, that happens more on Facebook and maybe on Twitter and or you know, sometimes on Medium or, or Tumblr. Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think blogs as blogs, maybe, maybe they're going away, but maybe they're just changing. Yeah. I don't know. That's my. Well, no, I think I think that's a it. good observation, and, and that really does explain. Uh, you know, again, you could you could even argue whether above the law or SCOTUS blog should even be called blogs at mm-hmm. this point because they really are. They're publications. They're digital publications, uh, and uh, you know, even my own blog, I've I've always kind of approached it more as a, you know, sort of a journalism enterprise, if you will. That that uh, I'm I'm covering. You know, I don't write my blog. It's it's not marketing for my practice because it has nothing to do with my practice, really. Um, and I don't get clients through my blog. It's just uh, I like writing about technology. I like covering technology. I like reviewing new products. Uh, and uh, that's the way I've always pursued it. Mm-hmm. So uh, the final thing on your list, which, as you said, does not mean it's the most or least significant one, is the expansion of practice management. And uh, it's expanded far enough that Lisa Needham on our site actually said, um, if 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 you're thinking about starting a legal technology company and your idea is that you'll start a practice management software company, please don't do that. There are tons of them out there already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yet you know we just saw the launch of one recently, uh, and they're they're continuing to be launched. Mm-hmm. I I, th- I think I've had practice management in my top ten list every year for the last three years. Just because it continues to amaze me, because I mean, practice management software is nothing new, and yet you would think it was. For a long time, lawyers just didn't pay attention to either that they needed it or that, or, or that it could actually do something for them. And it really was only when really Clio and 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 Rocket Matter came along, what six years ago now, whatever it's been, yeah. uh, and and launched these cloud platforms. Uh, and even even then, just doing something in the cloud was radical. But they changed. They those two companies started this whole chain of events that has uh, a, a lot more lawyers using practice management software now than ever before, and and a lot more than that, at least understanding and thinking about it uh, and and appreciating the the need to be looking into it uh, and. So it's it's significant in terms of the way it's uh, enhancing lawyers' practice practices and 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 protecting their clients really because good practice management software does serve the client as well as the lawyer, but it's also significant just as the to watch. It's also interesting just to follow this industry and see how it's growing. I mean, you know, Clio has has become a, a, a significant player. Uh, my case that I referred to earlier, its company going for an IPO. Uh, and yeah, there are plenty of others coming into this field, and they're going to continue. And, so. and you know, one of the first cloud-based ones, Rocket Matter, um, it, it had sort of seemed like it was it was not going to change a whole lot. But I have it on good authority that we can expect big changes from them and big upgrades and things soon. So they they haven't really given up either. And and as you said, all this influx of new things, I I think. As you said, practice management software isn't the sexiest thing, but it does represent a huge thing for uh, for the lawyers who use it, who never have before. And like just as a watcher of technology companies, and I think it's really, I, I think the market may be heating up for practice management software, and I think that probably means good things for lawyers who are going to get more and better options. Um, you know, it's it'll be neat to see Rocket Matter come barging back into the space and. 
you know, Zola just launched, which is beautiful uh, and really comprehensive, uh, and I think may have raised the bar on some features. And it's it's neat to see. I, I like I like to see good software, and there's a lot of good software for probably the first time in a very long time. So. Yes, I agree. So if you had to look back on 2015, what what was the the one? And you had to pick one thing. What was kind of the one thing that just was so obvious that you had to include it in this post? And and was if you had to rank these ten things, which is the biggest one? I, I think the biggest one in terms of the change in 2015 is the prevalence of analytics. I think 2015 was the year in which analytics, in part because of this Lex Machina acquisition, but overall. Uh, analytics really kind of took center stage for the first time this year. Analytics use in in, in, in analyzing case data, analy- analytics use in analyzing um, its use in, in e-discovery, um, and uh, that was what changed most during 2015. It, it had been kind of a, a, a backseat player for a while, and I think it really took took us a leading role this year and we'll continue to do that if you had to pick a trend that is most likely to define 2016 would you pick that one too or do you see something else kind of on the upswing right now that and i know you don't like doing predictions and neither do i but um but i don't maybe there's something in mind yeah well i don't like doing predictions but i it's you know where we are now is that uh analytics is the hot item in legal technology. Uh, we're going to see a lot of development in that area in, in, over the next year. Uh, Lexus Nexus is going to be working closely with Lex Machina to bring analytics, uh, integrate analytics into more of the standard uh, Lexus Nexus products. Uh, in the e-discovery area, uh, this whole area, you know, what probably one of the biggest cash areas in, in technology right now is e-discovery. You go to New York Legal Tech, and eighty mm-hmm. percent uh, of the vendors there are e-discovery companies. It's it's there's an area of it's an area where there's a huge amount of money being spent on technology innovation. Uh, technology assisted review there is. Uh, uh, going to continue to evolve um, over the next year. So that's going to continue to be huge. Why do you think uh, solo and small firm lawyers don't seem to feel like e-discovery is as important? Is it because they're missing e-discovery issues in their cases or is it really just because it doesn't come up as much? Well, I don't I don't think that they don't feel it's important. I, I think the problem, the, the, the difference is one of scale. Uh, the, when you're representing, uh, you know, uh, Apple or Samsung or a company on that scale in a litigation matter, the volume of electronic documents involved in that case is so huge that it's really beyond feasibility for humans to go through and deal with and review those documents. It just It just can't happen. So you need technology in order to get through uh, the discovery phase of those cases. There's no other way to do it. Mm-hmm. And in the smaller cases, you know, it, that's not the case. I mean, you can you can get an electronic, you know, lo- smaller firm lawyers are dealing with electronic discovery issues, but they're dealing with them without having to use sophisticated technology. And it's sense. only when you get into the higher volume cases that you really need that technology to drive the process. Well, Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. I loved looking back at 2015 and talking about new software developments And I hope you'll join us again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It was good to talk to you, Sam. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.